0: if you If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter one <coughs> excuse me um, we will pick up our series um, today entitled "Peace through Grace," where we've been walking through the book of ephesians Paul's letter to the the church in Ephesus these Christians there and and what what our identity is because of who Christ is, and seeing that it's in that that we have everything that we need. So today, um, we're, we're kind of finishing Paul's prayer that we started last week and uh, focusing on the, the last part of his prayer um, in the, the last part of this chapter in Ephesians. So if you will, read along with me um, from Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19 today. And then look through verse 23. So if you'll follow along. It says in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority over power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If y'all pray with me real quick, we'll ask the, the spirit to, to guide us through this today. God, we, we, we come to you acknowledging that, that without your spirit that we that we will not find your truth, that we will twist your words to, to meet our needs and desires. And, and we just pray that today your, your spirit would guide us through this, this truth that you've given us, through these words that, that you inspired Paul to write, that, that you would touch our hearts with them, that it would be your truth revealed, not what we hoped it might say or what we want it to say, but what it genuinely is. And that's your absolute sovereign truth. And we just, we admit our weakness to understand this and just pray that your spirit would give us power to discern it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So last week we looked at the idea of prayer. Uh, What is prayer? Um, How do we do it? Really, what it is, and that's why we said the essence of prayer. And what does it actually consist of? How should we do it? Necessarily, but what is the meaning behind what we do? And we saw that, that through this first part, in verses 15 and, and 18, that, that we see that our prayers contain three different things. They contain words of worship. And this is words that, that put God rightly in his place. He's the author of, of all things good. And, and everything that we give thanks to him, one, for our salvation, that, that anything that's good in this world, we put and um, place it with him. He elected us as sons and daughters. We're co-heirs with Christ. And it's because of that we worship him. We understand the gospel. We place him there. We also saw that that we need words of wonder. And and by wonder meaning a curiosity into who Christ is. This continually looking in deeper and deeper into who Christ is. Through our prayers we should constantly seek to know and to deepen our knowledge. And we, we should seek the Spirit's revelation in that, that, to gain knowledge through that, then also that that we should be wakeful to our identities, what that brings, and and to be vigilant in understanding why we have hope that we've been giving this immeasurable inheritance. That in Christ we're heirs to an inheritance that far outweighs the highs and even the lows of this world. Then, and, and again, we talked about how Paul in in Romans says that, that I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we should have this waitfulness. We should be vigilant to, to claim our hope and to continually put ourselves in that. So today we continue on and, and see last week we stopped saying that he moves on to God's power in this prayer. He, he talks about um, he starts requesting God to give the Ephesians to give us these things and to understand and and today as we'll go through and, and look at God's power as an essential part, we'll see that that we must focus our eyes on Jesus instead of ourselves if we're to have a healthy prayer life. If if we're to have a healthy, effective prayer life, our focus should be on Him instead of our needs, our desires. And so, really, if we, we want to look real closely at verse 19 and 21st, because that, that kind of gives us the, the, the springboard into the rest of what Paul was saying. Again, verse 19, it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so here, Paul, again, is revealing, revealing that it's to us who believe. He's talking about the power of God to us. He's not talking about the power of God to those who are outside of the body, to those who are not the saints in faith. This isn't the power of God to be poured out to unbelievers. This is how the power works for us who believe. And it's different. It's this beginning revelation of of whose God's power is poured out towards us and and, and how. How do we see that? And really, a, a lot of times when we see great power, we always assume that the person who has that is going to be inherently bad. We see that that our power or someone with power usually use that for their own means. That that they're selfishly going to use that power. We, we have an aversion to that. And Paul quickly displays that argument when he says in verse 20 that the working of his great might what worked in Christ. So he's not saying that this is a person that's going to to use this negatively as we often associate power, but God uses his power in Christ for us. This isn't a power that is, is lorded over us. It's a power that's worked for us. He's given us something in Christ. And, and right there, he answers a question we often have, is have you ever wondered where God's power fits into the gospel? We talk about the gospel all the time, but have you ever figured out how? Well, how does God's power actually fit into that equation? And here's where Paul gives us the answer. God's power is the reason that we have the gospel. It's when we look at Christ in the gospel, we see God's power on display. God is powerful because we see it working in Christ. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. And so we see that in Christ, we have the biggest display of God's power. If we want to see how powerful God is, we look to Christ. And that's what Paul's wanting the Ephesians to understand. That's what we need to understand through that is that we've seen the working of God's power. When I was a, a kid, I was always jealous of the Old Testament believers because they always had visual signs. They always had these visual expressions. You see in the Exodus that, that God led them by the, the, fly, the fire and the cloud. They parted the Red Sea and what a wonderful expression they saw they got to see the visible power of God, and I was always jealous about that, but I was jealous because i didn 't understand the gospel i didn 't properly understand the gospel because i didn 't realize that in Christ we see that same power on display. We actually see it we actually see a bigger expression of that that in Christ we see god 's power that 's what Paul says to in galatians in galatians three one he, in three one he tells the the his his readers he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what he's saying there to the Galatians is that, that it was my preaching, Paul's saying, I have given you the gospel vividly, clearly enough, as if you actually firsthand were there. And that's the same thing for us. When we see Paul's teaching of the gospel, it's like we can visibly see Christ. And when we can visibly see Christ and understand, then we see God's power on display. We know that that God is working this power out. And so Paul then, he moves on. He concludes his prayer by revealing what we must believe in Christ in order to correctly see God's power. But correctly see God's power and how it relates into our prayers then as we continue. So we first must believe in his presence. In Christ's presence, we must believe in Christ's power. And also, finally, in Christ's position. So, if you'll look at the, (coughs) excuse me, look at the last, that first part of verse 20. He says that he worked in Christ when, okay, here's this first part, when. He's showing us how that power was worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead. And so, he begins with the resurrection. Paul says, okay, here's, we, we have this visible picture of Christ. We see God's power at work in Christ. First, we see it through the resurrection. We have read of the resurrection. When we've read of the resurrection, we're forced to believe in Christ's presence because he's not dead. If he is alive, then he's present. He's not simply in this grave. He is alive. He, he rose. The resurrection is a display of that. And so when we look at that, we really must, must fight the urge to think it away. See, we live in this world that says you have to have emphatic proof if you're going to believe in something. They don't understand how we can believe in something that seems to defy science. And, and there's actually been people for centuries trying to explain away the resurrection. They, they try to explain away and saying, this is just outrageous. And, and some of their claims are more outrageous than the fact that he would actually rise from the dead. One of them, uh, one of them is, is that people say, well, he wasn't actually dead. That Jesus didn't actually die, that the Romans had messed it up, even though they had mastered the art of, of torturing and killing people, that they messed up with Jesus, that he wasn't dead, that somehow he was alive, and when they put him in the tomb, he somehow recovered there and then had the strength to roll away all of that, that he wasn't actually dead, he was actually still alive. So there wasn't a resurrection, it was just a recovery, which to me is harder to believe than... The actual resurrection, because the Romans they knew what they were doing. They were good at it. And the other one actually comes from a lot of Christians that that say that, okay, no, he was he was actually dead, but he didn't actually physically resurrect. It was he was resurrected through the teaching, through the belief of the apostles and the ones that followed. There was a figurative resurrection, not a literal resurrection resurrection. And there's there's been centuries of people that have used this and basically what they do is they demythologize mythologize, excuse me. Jesus. Anything that could be mythological, they explain away. Resurrection included in that. And so anything that can't be scientifically proven, they say, Well that's not true. But but here is what what Paul says and we actually see in First Corinthians fifteen he, he Paul explains this why we should believe in this, and I'll read it real quick. It's First Corinthians fifteen. We're going to start at verse three. It says, "For I delivered to you the first importance what I also received." Okay, and he's going to tell us what he received. Said so that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Then he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. So there's the gospel: Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and then he was raised. And then in verse five of First Corinthians fifteen, he he gives us kind of a Cliff Notes version of all the appearances of Jesus. It says that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he he appeared also to me. And so what Paul says there is that there's proof of the resurrection. He, that was kind of the Cliff Notes version of all the appearances that Jesus makes. And, and that's why Paul's mentioning this. He's saying there's proof to this. This isn't just this mythological thing. This isn't something that was made up. There's proof. You especially see it when he talks about the 500. He, emerges, he, he mentions that Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. Okay? And not only did he appear to 500 at one time, he says, but some of them are still alive. Like, go ask them yourself. So you can find these people. It's not me. He wasn't there. So he removes this idea that was something made up by his followers by saying that these are other people. If you took that out and you just saw, well, it was Peter, then the 12. Well, then it's James and the apostles. These are all people that were closely associated with Jesus. You could easily say, well, they made it up. They wanted to keep this going. But no, he appeared to 500 people. Most of them are still alive. So go ask them yourself. That's what he's saying. There's proof there's proof, so he insists that that if most of them are still alive, then we can, there's proof to this physical resurrection, and that brings us good news. It shows us that not even death can overcome God's power. Not even death can overcome God's power. That that we have life after death, death because Jesus does. But I got to admit, though, a lot of times this is this isn't easy for me. It, I struggled with this idea of death and, and almost having this this fear of death because I didn't understand it. Now, a lot of that is rooted when I'd stay at my grandmother. I blame it on her. Maybe I shouldn't, but you'll understand. Um, I, when I would stay at her house, she would um, she'd always pray with me before I'd go to sleep, and she would always pray that that if I died before I woke, and I was like, wait a second. I'm going to die while I'm sleeping? It freaked me out. I'm like, wait a second. I don't want to go to sleep. And so I remember I'd lay in that. I had a little, there was a little bed. You could see the trees outside the window. And I was just scared to death of this. Wait a second. I'm going to die? And it, it haunted me. I still have times where I forget the fact that there is life after death. That death isn't this negative thing. That, that death isn't this final ending place. It's actually a beginning of something greater, what we were intended to be anyways. It's in the resurrection power that we see God's command of nature. Death, yes, still all comes to us, but death doesn't have the final say. So if you're afraid of death, why? So I have to remind myself of that. So, When I, when I find these moments and we're talking and, I, and I, I still am overcome often, I'm not good at this. That this is one of my weaknesses, but I have to remind myself that in the gospel... We see God's display on power of power in Christ, knowing that He was raised. There's life in that. There's comfort in that. And I, this, this is probably the worst thing that I do. Is I, this is where I'm attacked the most. Is I fall down under that and think that, man, death is this final thing. So I have to remind myself of the gospel constantly, because in Christ we see God's power. We see God's power first in the resurrection. That's why at the end of that 1 Corinthians 15, Paul famously says, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Because it doesn't have it. There isn't victory for death. It's subordinate to God's power, just like every other law of nature. And we see that in Christ and the resurrection. Secondly, we need to believe in Christ's power. If you continue in verse 20, it says, And he raised him from the dead, and... So here's the next part. And seated him... At his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So we we see that after raising him from the dead, what did he do? He didn't just stop there, but no, he seated him at his right hand. And (coughs) with this, we need to we need to not assume that this is a stationary post. This isn't a, a duty station where where Christ is just there. This is a station of authority. This is authority and power. That, that Christ is God at his right hand. He, he rules because of that proximity. He's above all. He's been placed there. How? By the power of God. He raised him from the dead, and then he elevated him above everything. His name was above all names. That's why we can say that he's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's Jesus. He was born as a child. He was given as the Son. and He was given, and then it says, "And the government shall be upon his soul, shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." What we see there is that the government shall be upon his soldier. There is nothing that is subordinate. There is nothing that is over Christ. He is the final authority and rule. He has the last say. We must believe that God's power is on display in Jesus because he's exalted over everything. But you see that it's in Jesus for those who believe. When we keep reminding ourselves that this is God's power for us who believe, we see that we have comfort knowing that. We have comfort knowing that there's power to be found because it's been placed in Christ above everything. In his name, the power of God resides. He is the one on top. It's in him that we have the power to overcome the world. So, so do you trust him with that absolute power? I mean, when you look at it, do you really trust him with the absolute power that, that Paul is saying here, that he seated him in his right hand above, far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name in this age and age. To come? That's every name. That's angels. That's demons. That's everything. It's in his name, but it's for those who believe. That's why you can have the story in acts of the people that were trying to, to cast out the demons in Jesus' name, and what happened? The demon said, I don't know you, and he overpowered them. Actually, kind of beat them up, and they ran away. But if his name is above all names, how did that happen? That's because it's for those who believe. It's not just a name to say, and then all of a sudden this power is. If you don't believe in Christ's power, then the power is not there for you. It's not this token to just tap into this power so I can do what I want. It's a, it's a power to a realization of what's there. I was in college um, for a while. It's funny to say, for a while. Not that I was in college for a while, but I was, I guess. Wait. I was a marketing major for a while. There, that sounds better. But um, it's, never mind. Sorry, another thought. But, but I was a marketing major for a while. And in my marketing class, there was always this um, project. You had to create a product you were on teams you had to create a product and you had to make a marketing plan for it and the, the product that, that my group had we called it black tie fudge and we had this idea that you have all these fancy hotels in, in places that they put you might put mints or something on the pillows well we thought you could have fudge and we could get contracts Anyways, but that was our thing and we actually did very good. The professor, for a while, kept our little package. We, you had to make a package. You had to sell the thing. So um, he actually kept it in his office for a while. We did pretty good. We were kind of proud of what we had done. And we knew that he thought we were doing well as, we, as he would find out what we were doing. It was over a period of time. But one thing that happens when we presented it, we all were up there. And, and one of the last things he said, he said, so who's going to make the decisions? And we hadn't thought about that. We're like, well, we all were he's like, that's not going to work. Because there has to be one person that has that power of decision. And that's what we see here with Christ, is he has the final say. He is the authority above others. And we must remember that apart from Christ, we're powerless. We can't be trusted to make the decision, because we won't. We'll always fail that test. We'll make it selfishly. We're not going to distribute that power effectively, as Christ can. That's why we always need checks and balances in our human institutions and governments, even the church. We we need to protect ourselves because we're gonna fail that test. But Jesus doesn't need those checks and balances. And if we look to him and we see that he has the power to help us overcome because he's above everything. And so when we believe and we see his power, we know he has the power and we go to him, we know that we can overcome the powers of this world, that there's nothing here that can overcome us. The temptation and trials that we face are nothing because we have the source of all power. He's been exalted over them all, over all these trials and temptations that we face. They're all subject to him. Um, James Montgomery Boyce talking about this passage says we cannot resist Satan in our own strength but if we first submit ourselves to God so that the power of God demonstrated in the exaltation of Christ above all rule and authority flows through us the devil will flee from us as he has fled from Christ in the conclusion of his temptation in the wilderness and what he's there he's kind of he's Reminding us of what we find in James. James chapter four says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Submit yourselves to God under his authority. Christ has been exalted. He's above all names. He's been placed in that authority at the right hand and he has the power to rule. And he does so effectively and efficiently. So if we submit first to that, then we can overcome this world. It's not this overcome the world so then we can go back to Christ. It's the opposite. Jesus has the power. And until we submit ourselves to that, until we believe in Christ's power and that that's the power of God working through him, then we'll always be overcome. We always feel that we can't continue. Then finally, when we continue this thought... At the end of verse 21, not only in this age, but also the age to come. So forever, Christ will be that power. In verse 22, he gives us the final thing that we need to believe as we pray. He says, And put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, falls, who fills all in all. So, continuing through this, we must now believe in Christ's position. Not only his, his resurrection... His presence, but his power, but also his position. You see, he's put him put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So not only does Christ have the power and authority over every created being, angels, demons, everything on on earth and and elsewhere, but he's also the head of the church. So Christ was given to the church to govern it as its head. He's the head of the church. Pastor is not the head of the church. That, that position is filled by Christ, and a lot of times we forget that. We, we, we forget that Christ's presence, that we forget his power, and then we don't place him in the correct position. We don't place him as head over the church. We think that that's our job, and then we go, and, and that's talking to myself as well, that, that I, as pastor here at Waterston, I'm not the head of this church. That's Christ. I'm subordinate to him we have to have a head if this is Christ's body as it says in verse 23 which is his body he's the head he controls everything i would mess it up if jesus wasn't the head of the church and i was responsible for all this i would screw it up but that's not what we have we have christ the head of the church the head controls the body the head is where all the impulses start So we need to look at him as the head of the church to understand where the church should go. Because just like in our bodies, it functions correctly when when the brain is working. and the head, it shoots the the signals and we move. So too, the church should gather its power from the head, which is Christ. That is his position. And just like in the Old Testament, we saw Isaiah and God filled the temple. That's what verse 23 is talking about. There, there's some debate over verse 23. Let's, we'll look at verse 23 real quick by itself. It so, says, the last part of verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's some debate. Not that people, it's not a not a debate on what this means as far as this is a heresy and this isn't. It's a debate on what does it actually picture? What does it actually picture? And and I think that what it's saying, if we look at this whole thing that, that, If we look at Christ as the head and gives power to the church, we see that it's Christ filling the church. It's Christ filling this. It's through his position as head that he gives power to the church. Apart from Christ as the head, we cannot function properly. It's Christ. It's Jesus filling the church with himself. It's his body alive because of him. And that's why you see churches that have fallen away from the gospel they might seem healthy, but they kind of stay where they are. They lose their effectiveness eventually because there's not power, because they haven't properly put Christ in the head. And if you change the gospel, if you alter the gospel to include us, then he's not at the head anymore, we are. So we have to maintain a healthy view of who Christ is and the position that he has in the church as the head of the church. And so as Paul ra- wraps up this model prayer, we see that his focus at the end of it is to remind us everything we should rightly see in Christ. And, and as Paul often does, is everything goes back to Christ. And a lot of times we get tired of that. It's like, oh, here he goes again. But it's because we need reminding that often. But, but you see this today and you're like, okay, that's great. How does that affect our prayer? This is the essence of prayer part two, yet you haven't talked about prayer yet. And it's because this, this affects our prayers, because when we look at Christ, we see God's display and power, and we realize that then our worship stems from hearing the gospel. We hear the gospel, we see who Christ is, and that leads to Worship. And that worship rightly filters into our prayers. And we see that this curiosity and wonder is is to know him more. It's because we get a little taste of who he is when we see Christ. And we see the power of God raising him from the dead. And we want to know that more. How does that work? How do I tap into that power? Not for something for me, but what does it mean? And so we'll constantly try to dive deeper and deeper and ask the Spirit to reveal him to us. And we also see that Because of who Christ is. If we stopped at verse 18 and we forget all these things that that God has done, how his power is visible in Christ, we will never see the hope that we have. When we see Jesus as our Savior, that brings hope because we know that we have an inheritance that far outweighs this world. So so if you have you ever got to the point where you feel that your prayers just don't work? It's like I'm praying. Nothing happens. I pray for this, nothing happens. It's like, why even keep trying? And really, I think that if you looked at it, that, that you would think, and, and I have to remind myself of this often, that, that if, if there's a good chance that you feel that your prayers are ineffective, there's a good chance that you're not putting Christ at the center of it. That when you think about it, that, that everything is, is centered around you. And it might sound like you're, you're, you're focused on Christ, but are you really? i say that if your prayers have, have felt empty or felt powerless, maybe it's because you're, you're putting the power in the prayers and not in Christ. Or you're thinking that this actual prayer is the, is the power, but it's not. Christ is the power. And so everything we do should be centered around him. In Christ, God's power is displayed. It's visible, it's known, it's not hidden. And so we should root everything in Jesus. He's our rock. We root everything in them. <clears throat> a few years ago, I don't even know, I guess, I don't even know how long, four or five years ago maybe, I uh, had, a, had a friend that had passed away. He was early 20s. It was kind of this crazy, no one really knows what happened. It was like natural causes. You're like, he's 20. And at that funeral, um, the pastor, the pastor I grew up with, he told a story. He told a story. It's about a book that um, was written about an um, expedition of, of two guys named Joe Simpson and Simeon Yates. And what they did was the, the, they were in the Peruvian Andes. They were mountain climbing in the Andes. And they were going up this one mountain. It was about like 21,000 feet. But they were trying to go up a side that no one had ever done before. They are going up a face that no one ever successfully climbed. And, and they made it. They made it. They made it up the side. They were the first two men ever to do this. But as they were coming down, the storms had come in. You know, you're at that altitude. Um, the weather is, is critical. And as they were coming down, one of them slipped. And he kind of fell. And when he did, he landed real hard sliding down. So it, it jammed his leg back up into his knee. It broke his leg. And so now you're stuck up on the mountain, there's a storm coming in, and they had to descend at least three thousand foot down to where this, there was a glacier, and then that was where their camp was. And but the guy, obviously with a broken leg, you can't you can't really climb down. And so they they were right on the edge of this this cliff, and they had tied their ropes together because they're going one was going to lower them down, and then the other was going to rappel down, and they were going to go that way. Well. When the guy, the first one, it was Joe Simpson, when he lowered the other one down, he, can't, he couldn't see down, he couldn't see down the cliff. And so what happened is he lowered him further than he should have. And they had tied their ropes together, and they knew that they wouldn't have enough. They had 300 foot of rope, so when they tied it together, the knot couldn't go through the clip. so he couldn't belay him correctly. So they were going to have to, there was a shelf that they were trying to get to and stop untie the rope, tie it back so they could continue to drop him down. But when he put him too far over, there was too much weight on it. He couldn't untie it. He couldn't support his weight. And the other guy was hanging literally over this edge of this mountain and it was this, his his hands were were frostbitten so he tried to climb up the rope but he dropped the tools that he needed to climb back up the rope to relieve the weight so that he could do it. And the, the guy at the top, everything starts collapsing. The, the snow's giving way. He doesn't have a good anchor, so he does what you've often heard, and he cuts the guy free. Basically saying, the only way that we're, one of us is going to survive if I cut the rope. And so all he knew is that the guy dropped. He knows nothing else. And so he went down and, and assumed when he saw where the guy was, had been hanging, he just assumed that he had died. But he didn't. When he fell, he landed on this this shelf further down. And so he's got a broken leg. He still has rope because it all fell with him. And what he did is he placed this uh, piton, is what it's called, and it's, a, it's an anchor point. He put it in the, uh, this crevice so he could lower himself down. He knew that his partner was going to assume that he had died. So he was alone. If I'm going to survive, I've got to get out myself. And so he put that anchor in in this crevice of the of the mountain so that he could have a secure point to drop down. And he ended up lowering himself down and, and made it to the bottom and actually crawled out through a crevice and then over the glaciers. I mean, it's a crazy story and showed up literally hours before the guy was about to leave their base camp. And so he survived because, and, and, and in the book he talks about that, that it was that one anchor that he knew that that was his security. As long as he had that one anchor, then he was fine to drop himself down. And, and so, that, that story is exactly what we do when we pray. We think, how, how's the story about putting a, 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 the piton in the granite? What does it have to anything to do with prayer? It has everything to do because it's exactly what we do when we pray. There, there's a Hebrew word, there's a verb that, that translates uh, a firm or secure place. Okay, And the word that is translated in our Bibles of that is Amen. And so when we have this prayer, and we we pray these things and we end with amen, we're saying we're putting that in a secure, firm place. But what Paul's teaching us here is that secure, firm place is in Christ. And so Christ is that point. That's where God's power is. When we pray, we have security in our prayers, knowing that in Christ, they're secure. In Christ, they're firm, they're secure, just as the, as the climber put that in the granite, so also that's what we do with our prayers. When we say amen, we're effectively acknowledging that these prayers are firm and secure in you because of your presence, because of your power, because of your position. We know that we're secure in that, not in ourselves, but in Christ. That's why we can effectively go to God. That's why our prayers can be effective when they're focused on the security that is in Christ and not ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we just we we come to you. God, we acknowledge that, <coughs> that so many times we worship ourselves instead of you. And God, we 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 confess that to you. We want to always acknowledge you, even through our prayers, that you are the Father of all things that are glorious, that if there's anything good, it has come from you and you alone. God, we just pray that you continually, that your spirit will continue to reveal your son to us, that we would know him deeper and deeper, that our our fascination and curiosity for him would never wane, would never be put out. And God, I just pray that we continually focus our, our hope on him because it's through him that we have an inheritance that, that we can look forward to, that, that we can be reassured is far better than anything we have here. God, it's in him that we place our lives that that we place our requests when we come to you. We know that you want us to come to you and we just pray that it's in him that we'll always root ourselves and our prayers will always be filtered through him and putting him in the correct position and acknowledging his power, which is yours. And it's in his name we pray, amen.